Dr. Seltzman is a great neurologist who became fascinated with the study of thought transference. I've actually seen it done in India, where Seltzman studied for many years. As you know, the advanced yoga is capable of living in a state of suspended animation for months. His mind and body dissociate. Now, what Seltzman did was to take this discipline several stages further. And with scientific aid, he was able to transmit the psyche of one person into another. The mind of one man into another? <laughs> Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're finally done looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics. It's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, a man who is always denied having a Napoleon complex. My co-host is Guy, whose mind has been switched with mine, so it seems I'm also the co-host. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. I hope you know which end of the grenade to throw and which to keep. <laughs> it's a trick question. You throw the whole thing. <laughs> Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going over the last two episodes that I dropped from my perfect ordering of the prisoner. So Guy can determine whether they really don't belong or whether actually we should find a place for them. And finally, at the end, we'll do a revised order based on what we've learned watching through all the episodes of the show in this manner. Up first is Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. And this episode was filmed while Patrick McGowan was off in the U.S. making the film Ice Station Zebra, which we're going to be covering. And the question then is, how would they deal with their star not being available? Will they be so clever about it that the viewer won't even notice? <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, the episode title and the background music heard throughout it derived from the song The Ballad of High Noon, which was also called Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darlin'. Introduced in the 1952 movie High Noon, which that's a movie I really enjoy. I have to be honest, I really didn't notice the music in this episode. I don't know if you did. Not really, no. Yeah, so it didn't really stand out. Which means that the title doesn't connect to anything in the episode. It makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> well, it is in the sense that there's a female character who uh, number six wouldn't want to be forsaken by. I guess so. <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay, so let's get to the episode itself. This is a unique take on the opening. It's the only time they did it this way. Instead of our normal theme with McGowan driving like a bat out of hell, we start out in a cozy government office with some officials looking at a series of what seemed to be vacation photos, trying to figure out how to find a hidden message in them. They're also arguing over their, whether there even is a hidden message in the photos. And eventually, they settle on the photo of some older-looking gentleman, a guy named Seltzman, as the important photo, and they decide they need to look into this. At this point, we switch to getting our usual opening, with McGowan driving in the car and going and pounding the desk and all that sort of stuff. Except at the end of that, there's none of the back and forth between number six and the new number two. That's just gone. Yeah. And it turns out our number two is a kindly-looking, white-haired old gentleman drinking tea. Seems very harmless. And he meets a colonel in his office, you know, big round room office, who has been sent to the village for a mission, but he has no idea why he's there and he's confused about it. And they have a very long discussion, <laughs> this is going to be a, uh, a trend in this episode, about this man Seltzman, the guy from that photo earlier, and how he developed a mind transference technology, which lets you switch 
the minds of people into different bodies, and then he disappeared. They're talking about how Seltzman developed this technology, and they mentioned that he was inspired by Indian yogis. And I can't help wondering if this may have inspired the movie All of Me hmm. with Steve Martin and <laughs> Lily Tomlin, because that's the big plot point in, uh, in that one. Yeah, and I'd rather be watching that. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Cobb was a rising young lawyer whose first big case. Guess what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to come back from the dead. Oh. Was a basket case. What am I missing here? You see, thanks to His Holiness Prakalaza, my soul is going to leave my body forever and become one with the universe. At which time my soul will enter her body. Ah, good plan. So they care about this because they have this big plan to use this, you know, amazing technology. Who knows? Maybe you could help people who are about to die or burn victims or something, you know, get out of their bodies. But no, what they want to use it for is they want to take spies that have been captured, switch out their minds with one of our own agents, and then send the spy back to their originating country. And this way we could penetrate the security of any country. Not a bad plan. Yeah. What happens now is kind of confusing because they show things out of order and it's not clear. You kind of almost have to get through a lot of the episode before you really understand all this, in my opinion. But what, what's happening is that they erase number six's memory of the village. So they have this ability to just rewind you to a certain point and erase your memory. So they transfer number six's mind into the colonel's body. Then they put the colonel in number six's flat in London with the instruction to find Seltzman. And now we get into some real surprises, if you want to call them that. It turns mm -hmm. out number six has had a wife all this time, Janet. I went through this whole episode under the assumption that she was his fiance. I don't recall if they ever said explicitly that she was his wife, but I don't know. Maybe I just well, wasn't what, watching what we know enough. is we know that he asked her father for her hand in marriage. So they don't mm -hmm. explicitly say they got married, but they don't say they right. didn't. Right. So yeah. it's, you know, okay. one way or the other, she's effectively his wife. If it may be all, yeah. all but wedding or something. <laughs> right. His wife sees that somebody is in his flat and that his car is out front. So she shows up looking for him and she finds this Colonel guy. He realizes he can't really say who he is because she's not going to believe him. So he pretends he's there with number six. And when he, when he first comes to, he thinks no time has passed, but it turns out it's been a whole year since right. he's seen her last. Yeah. They have this whole thing. Cause he's, when he wakes up, he's thinking about her birthday and this dress he got her and, and a gift and everything. And when he describes those things to her. She's thoroughly confused until she remembers that those were things from a year ago. And the interesting thing for the show, if we want to treat this as canonical, is that means he's been in the village for a year at this point. Mm -hmm. So she goes looking through the apartment for, you know, her beloved, since he said he was there. She doesn't find him. She gets quite upset about it. And it turns out she's the daughter of Sir Charles, who's the highest ranking government official we see in this episode. And the Colonel slash number six now spends a bunch of time trying to convince the government and Sir Charles that he is number six. He keeps telling them information that only he would know or only he would know about them. But ultimately, nothing is convincing because they point out that he could have tortured or otherwise got that information out of number six. So even though it's accurate, 
it doesn't say that he's actually number six. Yeah, he realizes there's pretty much nothing he can do that will fully convince them. Mm. And he does eventually convince Janet in a rather creepy manner. <laughs> They're at a party at the, you know, the, the only place that holds parties in London and France, uh, the same building and outside <laughs> that we saw in all those London, other shows. France and the village. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he basically, I mean, I thought it was inappropriate, you know, especially knowing that he's in a different body. I mean, he basically starts fondling her and kisses her and, you know, tries to kiss her in a way that, that convinces her it's him. <laughs> Yeah, he, uh, he has a sort of routine of, you know, kissing one cheek, then kissing her nose, then the other cheek, or some <laughs> something like that, you know, but but it works, and she's convinced. Right. I was oh, going to say, I, putting myself in her place, if some guy came and kissed me the same way my, you know, quasi-husband used to, I wouldn't be like, oh, you're my husband. I'd be like, what's going on here? Get the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would be an option. <laughs> But she, she finally believes him. Now, here's one of the things, you know, we know I kept this episode out of the ordering, so I'm not a big fan of it. And one of the things I'll say about that is this whole thread, first of all, of course, is shockingly out of context for the prisoner, right? The idea that he is married or almost married and has had someone looking for him this last year. And he's been back to London several times throughout the show. This has never come up before in any way. Also, this thread means nothing. It do, it contributes absolutely nothing to the story. Mm. They kind of make this little tenuous thing because she gives him a receipt he needs for the next part, but that wasn't necessary at all. That you know, it, so mm. I just feel useless. Yeah, although uh, if he is married or engaged and happily so, then that that adds another level of. Uh, pathos to his continuing right. imprisonment right so, which if it ever had come building. up before you know that would be okay <laughs> <laughs> so eventually he goes to retrieve a roll of film he'd left for developing the year before and we kind of realized at some point oh that's the connecting thing you know in the very beginning of the episode they were looking through these pictures and the pictures they were looking through is the roll of film that he had left to be developed before he got kidnapped and he finds out in the process that someone else did take out his photos uh, due to a clerical error, and then they brought them back. So that's how the government got them. Yeah. And it turns out they sent number six back to London with his memory erased to see what he'd do with these photos, because they feel like these photos have important clues in them, but they don't know what they are. And what we see him do, there is a message in the photos. I don't know why the message would be there or who, there's no idea like what this is about. But what he does is he uses a very convoluted method to determine out of this whole set of, you know, a few dozen photos, which ones to pull out and overlay on each other. And here's one of the things I just found really unbelievable is there's a, there's a numerical code tied to the letters in the name Seltzman. And to watch someone who's supposed to be number six counting on his fingers to see which letter through which I just, <laughs> it, it, it looked like a little kid doing it, you know, A, B, C, D, you know, <laughs> and it's like, this is not number six. He, McGowan would never do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would, uh, he would have a pretty good idea of, of the numbers of the letters of the alphabet, <laughs> yep. I think. And once he uses this convoluted method, he pulls out four photos and they're really slides, right? So they can, they're transparencies that can be overlaid on top of each other. And he puts them in a slide projector, which is something I guess kids today probably wouldn't even be familiar with. But mm -hmm. he then puts on some special glasses and 
each one he inserts with the glasses, he can see text information that's been overlaid on the photos that you can only see with these glasses. When all four photos are there, he sees the text Kandersfeld, Austria, and the, the image of Seltzman. So Seltzman is in Austria. <laughs> and so he now heads to Austria by way of montage, <laughs> watching him, uh, you know, taking a boat and driving his car and all this. And he's being followed all the way because the government, of course, wants to know what's going to happen here. And he pretty quickly finds where Seltzman is. Seltzman is acting as a barber in this little village. And it is a little amusing because when he gets there, they're like, welcome to the village. You're like, hmm, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> And it turns out he and Seltzman knew each other well. They were friends. And now he's in this different body, and he's trying to convince Seltzman that his own technology was used on number six, and that the person in front of him is, in fact, number six. But Seltzman, just like the government, says, you, you could have got all this information anyway, so there's no way I can believe you. And we, we find out, too, while number six is talking to Seltzman, that what he's come for is the Reversal process. So Seltzman worked out perfectly how to swap the mines, but nobody knows how to do the, the swap back, <laughs> which seems implausible to me. <laughs> Good point. Although I guess the story with mine swapping, finding that part implausible. <laughs> but now we get to the next implausible thing. The colonel proposes to Seltzman that handwriting is as unique as fingerprints, which Seltzman agrees with. <laughs> and he had proven to himself earlier that his handwriting is exactly the same, even though he's in a different body with different fingers. <laughs> so again, a little unbelievable. But he has Seltzman pull out a letter that he had sent to him before he got kidnapped. And he writes something and shows that the handwriting is identical. So finally he is convince Seltzman. But Seltzman's not an idiot, and he points out that the people who did this to you clearly wanted you to lead them to me. <laughs> mm. And this is actually, again, unusually sloppy for number six, because he was followed and didn't realize it and didn't slip the guy. So immediately, yeah. the guy following the colonel shows up, and they have this big fight in the basement. And while they're fighting, another guy shows up and gasses them just like in the beginning of each show. So he's got this little gas gun yeah. and suddenly we're back in the village, but now Seltzman is there and the Colonel, you know, Colonel slash number six, they're in number two's office. And now that they have Seltzman and I guess, you know, to your point, which I, I kind of didn't notice that plot point so much, but it makes sense that, you know, the whole reversal thing. So now that they have Seltzman, they want him to swap number six and the Colonel's mind back, presumably to, to prove the technique and to maybe get their agent back. Seltzman says he'll only do it if he can do it alone, and they accept since they're going to record everything on camera, so they'll figure out what he was doing. And when Seltzman does it, he puts himself between number six and the colonel, so they're both in beds with the typical, you know, sort of Frankenstein equipment, you know, attached to their head. And he has the thing attached to his head, and he's between the two of them. And he does the process, and, you know, lights flash and Frankenstein-like stuff, and he is clearly being damaged in the process and looks like he's dying. Finally, it's over and Seltzman is in really bad shape, but number six and the Colonel look fine. And while they're figuring out what's up with Seltzman, the Colonel takes his leave. And after he does, <laughs> number two suddenly realizes based on kind of vague things that Seltzman says, 
he suddenly, because he doesn't actually say, I'm the colonel. He just says, oh, I'm not going to make it. You know, I didn't uh, tell people I did my duty or something. You assured me that I was, uh, that we would have a healthy subject or something like that. So it's not clear why, but what he says triggers number two to realize that what Seltzman did was he put number six's mind back in the proper body (laughs) and he switched with the colonel. So he has now walked out and is flying away in a helicopter. And for some reason in this story, once you, you're, you know, a few feet away from the village in a helicopter, there's no way to get you back. <laughs> you know, they can't fly another <laughs> helicopter or a jet or anything after you. So he escapes. <laughs> it is a little odd, too, that number six just blurts out the truth, which if there was a way to recall the helicopter, certainly that would Right, right. He says, oh, Selton, did, you know, he, so, he did a three swap know. and did all this. And also note that number six now has his memory back, even though his memory had been wiped of the village so that was sort of convenient maybe seltzman <laughs> just stuck it back for him and seltzman's body yeah. now dies with the colonel's mind inside and seltzman has escaped and it's the end of the episode there are fun ideas in this and i think this totally could have been a good prisoner episode you know there's a lot of similarities to the schizoid man and i could see in another draft maybe it was even their original idea where they put the colonel's brain into number six so that he can use number six's body to try and get information they couldn't get otherwise, right? That would, that would be a totally mm-hmm. good episode. It would allow, just like in Schizoid Man, it would allow McGowan to, you know, sort of, as you were saying, sort of like the uh, Steve Martin movie, it would allow him to act with someone else controlling his body. Yeah. But, you know, th- this is, uh, it's just padded out like crazy. I mean, I didn't mention it, but earlier on when they were regressing his memory, they too, like, three or four minutes straight of flashbacks through the entire series for no reason other than they were just trying to pad (laughs) this thing out. And also they were trying to imply that McGowan was in the episode, even though he wasn't. (laughs) He did have some voiceovers. Yeah. A couple of those. (laughs) And almost all the scenes seemed to have extra shots and unnecessary dialogue. And they just went on and on in a way that is really (laughs) unusual for this show. I mean, this show usually is clicking along. We get to see some nice Austrian scenery, though. <laughs> yeah. And again, I just don't buy it that number six is married. It doesn't fit in with anything else. So it don't, you know, it only fits in here. So what, so while I think this has the potential to be an episode, I just don't feel it fits. So with, with all that argument. <laughs> the, the marriage would explain one thing that recurs throughout the show, though, which mm. is he doesn't want any kind of romancing the ladies. That's true. That's true. So, you know, if he's a loyal husband, that could, that could account for it. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, you know, we'll come back to this after the next one and see if you want to, want to keep it or not. So <laughs> now it's time for okay. our final episode, The Girl Who Was Death. Is he Potter? It's our former Siberia. What was the colonel up to? Dr. Snips, crazy scientist. For the last 26 years, he's been building a super rocket to destroy London. Just a bit of context up front. This was a script for another show, which won't be totally obvious at all. <laughs> uh, might have even been Danger Man, I'm not sure. And they just used it as a filler. So with that, <laughs> take it away. Without spoiling too much, I'll just say that pretty much the entire episode is filler in one <laughs> sense. So, so it starts off at a cricket match, uh, not, not in the village, but just somewhere in England. There's a well-dressed woman in white in the audience, and she'll be important in this episode. 
We see the cricket ball goes into the woods and it gets swapped for another by some unseen hand. A player goes to retrieve the ball from the woods, but it's the new ball. When it's hit by the man at bat, it explodes and kills him. <laughs> and we get the little little scenes that indicate that the well-dressed woman in white may have some relationship right. to this. Yeah, that's, she's not just dressed in white. She has sort of weird makeup and kind of white eyeliner and, you know, it's all. Yeah, right almost uh, almost uh, like, a, what, what would it be, uh, Ziggy Stardust? <laughs> you know, when yeah, David right. Bowie put on the, the eyeshadow. Yeah, and, which, you know, probably uh, would have been uh, around this time, too. Something I noticed with this that just is really interesting about being in different cultures, even in the modern world, right? We're all interconnected. We all see each other's TV shows and movies and everything. But for all of the times that I've seen cricket in different shows and movies, and even when I've read a little bit about it, I don't have the slightest clue what's going on. And it must be, <laughs> you know, I have to imagine if you grow up in England or something that football or, or baseball must be similar, right? Where you just don't know what's going on. And because, and it just reminds me that we grow up in this, we play it at school, you know, it's a part of things. So we just like, even if we're not sports fans and I'm not particularly a sports fan, we just know how mm -hmm. these games work. But if you're coming right. to another culture, it's just mysterious. I have no freaking idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I've read a few different things, like at least one of the Flashman books uh, has uh, some involved descriptions of cricket matches. And then one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books goes into uh, cricket at some length because uh, actually it's very similar because the cricket balls are, are bombs <laughs> <laughs> in that story, too. But I still have no idea what's going on. So, yeah. <laughs> You and I are in the same boat there. So after that deadly explosion, we see uh, Swinging London of the late 1960s, and uh, there are newspaper articles out about the murder of a colonel who exploded by hitting a cricket ball with a cricket bat. Number six reads an article about this, and he visits another spy of his acquaintance. He, uh, he's uh, disguised as a shoeshine boy. And he was, if you, he, now I don't, it's not clear to me it was supposed to be, but that's the same actor who was also on the cricket field doing the score. He was in that first scene hanging yeah. up the score number. Yeah, we saw yeah. that he had a gun, but then the gun never came into play. Like he was supposed to assassinate right. somebody or something. And I don't think they go into a lot of detail about this, but I, I think it's implied that he was there to try and prevent any kind of mischief mm. of the sort that actually ended up happening. But, you know, you can't anticipate everything. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> my, like my in, in, I think that's probably true. My take was he was supposed to do the assassination and someone got to him first because as the shoeshine boy here, he seems upset and he says that the what they did wasn't sporting. And... So, I mean, it could go either way, but I kind of felt like there, he was like, I was there to assassinate him in, you know, the approved manner <laughs> and somebody else came along and did it in an unfair way. <laughs> well, it could be, but as we find out, the guy who was assassinated was on the trail of a mad rocket scientist yeah. 
So it seems like Member Six's organization has an interest in keeping yeah. people like that alive. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think you're probably right. And soon enough, this shoeshine boy gives him a tip to go to the record store and request booth seven, and Number Six does so and plays a record and. It says his mission is to find and destroy the mad scientist's rocket, which is what that colonel who was assassinated had been working on. And a weird thing here, you notice this had to be a reference. Well, I didn't check the dates and everything, but I assume this is a direct reference to Mission Impossible because the idea of going to a record store and getting a record and playing it to get your mission is, you know, right out of the Mission Impossible TV series. But there is this weird Mm -hmm. thing where he gets in a conversation with the records. You're like... Well, are, it's just a, you know, are they actually talking to him in real time? Or, you know, what is this? <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he makes a little muttered remark and the record says something like, what was that? <laughs> yeah, that was cute. So his first means of trying to find and destroy the rocket is he's going to take the place of the man who was murdered. He, he becomes a cricketer himself. He uh, has a fake mustache and mutton chop sideburns. That's <laughs> <laughs> very dashing. And you now this is where, well, the logic falls apart all through this whole show. And, <laughs> yeah, the logic and there is actually, <laughs> there is actually a reason for that at the end we find out. Yeah. But the logic of how number six is going to step in and thereby become as much of a threat as this colonel was who had been doing all this research. It's not clear, but for whatever reason, when he gets to 99 points, just as the colonel had, the ball swap happens again. The ball goes into the woods and gets swapped with a new explosive one. And you notice, you could call it an artistic choice. I'm going to say it was being cheap. They reused all the same shots from the earlier cricket match with the same actors, just with Magoo in there. So they didn't have to refill uh, all that. It was every single okay. shot was just reused. <laughs> yeah. I, I was thinking, yeah, they really just did the same stunt over again, <laughs> but I, I didn't know quite how far they went with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And this time the woman in white is near the woods watching as uh, number six is about to hit the ball, except he doesn't hit the ball. Instead, he picks it up and he throws it to where the woman in white was standing near the edge of the woods. When it hits the ground, it explodes, but she had left already. He missed her, but she did leave a hanky on a tree branch, and it has a message written in lipstick directing him to the local pub. <laughs> so he goes there, and this is this is kind of cute. I think mm-hmm. as soon as I saw the, the first word, I probably would have just poured <laughs> it out and read the rest of it. Or maybe lifted up the glass. But anyway, he's drinking, and fortunately, he's got the glass perfectly aligned so that he can read the first word of a sentence in the bottom of the glass. It says, you. (laughs) And as he proceeds drinking more and more, uh, it reveals have and been. (laughs) And then the the last word, as he drains the dregs of the glass, is poisoned. (laughs) So the message is, you have been poisoned. And uh, fortunately, being a secret agent guy, he knows the proper antidote, which apparently is dilution. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, yeah, and and bombing your body with alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) He orders a lot of shots. Uh, I think think there's whiskey, vodka, Drambuie, Tia Maria, Cointreau, Grand Marnier. He, He He just gets an assortment of them, lines them up one after another. Finally, the bartender protests that he's going to make himself sick. 
So he walks away from the bar, heads, he's heading into the men's room, and the woman in white comes out of the men's room, but he doesn't seem to even notice her, probably because his mind's on right. being And poisoned. she comes out in a very dramatic way. She has, you know, one of those old-fashioned, really long cigarette holders, nah. and so <laughs> that kind of precedes her out of the bathroom, so that's kind of funny. <laughs> so in the men's room, he uh, you know, tries to freshen himself up a little. Well, I think he uh, vomits he as to the... Be the implication, right? I mean, that's why he took all that no. alcohol was he wanted to get himself to vomit. And, oh, yeah. And that's how he gets yeah. rid of the poison. Okay. Well, that's a way to freshen yourself up. <laughs> and he sees that there's one of those old rolling cloth towel dispensers. I haven't seen one in years, but they used to be quite common. Written on the towel is a uh, is a message directing him to the Turkish baths. So he's being led on a bit of a wild goose chase here, <laughs> but he's going along with it. At the baths, he's in a big steam box. You've seen him before, the kind where the you know, your head pokes out and everything else is locked in a box. Except, well, you wouldn't be locked in a box, <laughs> but in this case he is, <laughs> because the woman in white, she takes out a broom handle and she sticks it through the handles of the doors on the steam box. Yeah, she was hiding um, in it, another steam box, right? So once he gets yeah. in, she suddenly opens the door and comes out. Yep. <laughs> yep. And he's oblivious. His eyes are closed and he's humming a little tune. To add insult to injury, she takes a big globe and puts it over his head just to get extra steam in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's really a pretty uncomfortable situation to be in. She leaves, but... Fortunately, he's strong enough to break the broom handle uh, by banging on the doors. So he gets out. And we notice when he gets dressed. Uh, well, that's not when he gets like, dressed. He was in the box with this costume. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I did not pick up that yeah. detail. Okay. <laughs> Better still. And that may be another one of those lapses of logic I yeah, mentioned yeah. here. Uh, a bunch of things happen throughout this episode that make it just a tad more surreal than your average prison yeah, it's kind of what we call dream is, logic, right? Yeah so, yeah, so he gets out of this box and he's in a full Sherlock Holmes uniform. <laughs> yeah, although if anybody is, is listening and thinking this is going to end up to be all a dream, well, you're wrong. <laughs> Technically wrong. <laughs> So she's left him another message in the Turkish bath, and this one sends him to a boxing match at an amusement park. It's actually a neat little amusement park. I won't go into great detail about it, but it reminds me of one of the local amusement parks here when I was a kid in the 70s. Yeah, lots, um, lots of rides and lots of colorful stuff. One thing I noticed is that they did lots of location shooting at the place where this amusement park was. But clearly, McGowan was never there. Every single shot of McGowan is on a screen or in a studio <laughs> and faked. Um, oh, so, yeah. yeah. There are a yeah. lot of green screen uh, shots in this. I, I hadn't realized that he's actually never at the park, but it does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so the first visit at the park is to the boxing ring. And he goes to sit in the audience in his Sherlock Holmes clothes. But the referee calls him up to fight as Mr. X. He's their special guest. <laughs> yeah, this is and one they, of those things where you have a, a known boxer who's really, really strong and wins all his fights, and then people will kind of make bets that they can go a certain number of rounds with the guy. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, involuntarily gets uh, gets volunteered for that role. <laughs> <laughs> 
The opponent, he's a, he's a big guy. He's kind of a bruiser. But when number six gets into the ring, they start fighting, and then the opponent tells him he has to go to the Tunnel of Love. So uh, the woman in white has been here and left a message for him. And uh, at the end of this scene, it looks like uh, it looks like the fighter gets a knockout on number six, or at least yeah. punches him yeah. to the floor. But apparently, it, this isn't the spot chosen for killing him, or else <laughs> yeah. he just uh, scrambles under the ropes and Sounds makes his right. departure. Now, the woman in white has been here. She starts out looking yeah, like a really old like lady, the old woman. Yeah, yeah, and she comes and wishes him <laughs> luck, and then uh, <laughs> it turns out to be the woman in white. Yep. Yeah, she she even puts on the old woman voice. It's something like, uh, good luck, young man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something like that. So he goes to the Tunnel of Love. He's riding in his little boat. He passes right by the woman in white, and he doesn't he doesn't see her. But from behind him, he hears her voice. She tells him not to look because she has him covered. She praises him for getting as far as, she, as he has. Uh, she sounds quite impressed with him. And when she, when she stops saying useful things and just starts laughing maniacally, number six looks in the back seat of the boat, and there's a small radio back there that her voice was coming from. And the maniacal laughing continues, so number six just decides it's not useful and throws it into the water, and he does it just in time because as it hits the water, it explodes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much everything in this episode explodes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was another attempt to kill him. And I actually, this is one of the things that I actually managed to anticipate. Because, uh, you know, whenever, like if the Joker leaves you a box with mm. him cackling in it, you know, get away from that thing. <laughs> <laughs> now he just pursues her out throughout the amusement park. He goes on various rides thinking that she's gotten on them. And he keeps missing her. He gets on a log flume ride. He gets on this. Neat little circular mini coaster. It just goes around in circles up these gentle hills, but uh, it has this retractable canopy that I've never seen on an amusement park ride before. It's really, really clever. Yeah, I wonder if that's a outside of the U.S. thing because I've never seen that either. So it makes it look kind of like a snake, mm -hmm. and presumably it gives the people a bit of privacy. It might be like Tunnel of Love supposed to be, maybe give you an opportunity to get a little smooching in or something. Yeah, could be. <laughs> But it's pretty nifty in any event. He goes next onto a full-size coaster. He thinks he's got her there, and he's in the same car with the woman in white. She's up front, and she's standing up and raising her hands and doing some little moves, just uh, apparently sort of taunting him. Uh, so as the coaster's going through its track, uh, the number six works his way up seat by seat. He gets to her only to find that this woman is... Someone else. It's a whole <laughs> different girl, and uh, her boyfriend is there taking pictures of her, and he's not happy about number six. And, and he comes out of, like, somewhere in the car, like he's been hidden in there, so I don't know which was. But did you notice who this was? This is mm -hmm. Alexis Kenner, who we've seen now multiple times, and oh, he was the boy. Oh, it was the boy, in, yeah. In and, Living uh, in Harmony, and then he and was then in, the, he last was in the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. They, it's clear that oh, McGowan okay. just really liked him as an actor, because he put in, and there's nobody else he put in so often. Hmm, okay. Yeah, I, 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 didn't, I didn't catch that, although when you started saying that, that was the first possibility that popped into my <laughs> head. So, But yeah, he, he just has a minor role here, but it was fun. He just kind of verbally abuses number six a little bit for being a creep. 
<laughs> so after he gets off this ride, uh, number six finds a woman again doing similar posing in front of a carousel. But then he sees the boyfriend again and he backs off. By this time, it turns out that really was the woman he was chasing. And she's apparently the boyfriend's real girlfriend, or at least she gives him a kiss. Yep. <laughs> so next she leads him on a merry car chase. And she has a Mr. Microphone, which I uh, I didn't look up when those came out, but I know in the 70s they uh, they sold them. Where you, you turn it on and it broadcasts on the FM wave band so that you can hear it on your car radio. And she's doing this with number six's car car radio. It's not an actual Mr. Microphone. It just the principle is the same. <laughs> Do you remember that I'll have to I'll see if I can find the audio of those commercials where they have teenagers picking up girls by using the Mr. Yeah, Microphone. we'll be back to pick you up later. <laughs> hey, this Christmas party is getting a little too quiet. I think it's time we liven it up with my favorite Christmas gift, Mr. Microphone. Hey, what's that? Well, you set the dial on your FM radio and testing, testing. testing. Hey, I'm on the radio. These kids are having a fabulous time with Mr. Microphone, the cordless microphone that actually puts your voice on the radio. There are no attaching wires, so you're free to move around. <laughs> Broadcast over any FM car radio. Hey, good looking. We'll be back to pick you up later. I'm sure that works yeah. never. <laughs> <laughs> Very infrequently, at least, Tip. <laughs> so, uh... She's got a method of communicating with number six, even though they're both chasing in very, very fast cars. And she tells him she's really fond of him. She even describes uh, the way his hair curls and things like that. And she says, I'm going to do you the honor of letting you die superbly. <laughs> and then she does something that, again, could be one of those little lot breakdowns of logic <laughs> that we've been talking about. She points backwards at his car, she's in a convertible, so she just points backwards at him. Apparently, her finger, or she, uh, or both, have hypnotic powers, because we get a few scenes of her waving her finger around, and the camera rotates, mm -hmm. you know, so we see number six in his car turning upside down. Something about the way this was filmed is actually a little more disorienting to me than I would have <laughs> thought it would mm -hmm. be, so it's, it's not bad, but... It, it still seems pretty impressive or unusual that she uh, has this remote hypnosis power. But she decides to play with him a little. She's not going to do him in right here with nothing so trivial as a car accident. <laughs> so she lets number six recover and follow her to a seemingly abandoned town. He parks in the town and gets out. The girl talks to him on the PA system and she introduces herself formally. Finally, she says, my name is Death. She goes on to say that her father can't be here because he's busy with his rocket. <laughs> so she's the daughter of this mad scientist whose crazy rocket he has been sent to destroy. And did you notice this town is an, uh, emulating the village? And it's even called the village on a map we see later. But they have like, they stuck this green dome thing on top of a building and they have different things. And... I saw that green dome, and I was looking at it, and I was like, that's not number two's play. Nah, because it's <laughs> the wrong size and stuff like that. But, but yeah, it does have a similar feel to the village. It has that sort of uh, old European yeah. kind of And one of the things feel. we haven't mentioned is between some of the scenes, we've been seeing 
pictures of what's been going on, drawings in like a children's drawing book. And after right. this scene, when you see this town, it says at the bottom, just in a little thing, it says the village. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Death, as we now know her, she invites number six into an abandoned building full of traps. Why not? <laughs> he goes in. The first trap is a machine gun turret. He evades that. Second is a spike bit. He manages, manages to get out of that. He happens to, well, he, he has a, a couple fortunate coincidences help him with that one, like the presence of a nearby pallet and uh, the fact that he now is carrying a machine gun that can act as a pull-up bar to keep him from falling all the way into the spike pit. And she does tell him no one's gotten past this point before, so uh, apparently, you know, <laughs> this is where everybody else dies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so after escaping the spike pit, the the next test is there's a room with a mined floor, but there is a pipe going over it, and he leaps up and grabs onto that and goes hand over hand. But unfortunately, it's what she calls the hotline, so he's burning his hands as he's crawling along the pipe. But he does get out of that room, and apparently he doesn't suffer any lasting effects from the hot hands. But he's out of the frying pan and into the fire because now he's in the candle room, and metal shutters drop, closing up all the all the doors and windows. Over the public address system, Death explains that the candles emit cyanide gas, and if they're snuffed, they explode. So he's got to either risk the explosions or let them keep burning off more and more cyanide. So he comes up with a plan that, uh, that Death actually mocks him for. She doesn't seem to think he has any purpose in mind except just random panic. He's gathering up a whole bunch of shuttles, candelabras and this and that. Uh, and setting them all by one of the metal shutters. Then he ducks down behind a counter and uses a pair of bellows to snuff them all out at once with a strong wind. And when they're snuffed out, they explode, and they all explode together and breach the door. So good thinking on his part. <laughs> there is something she said in here which educated me a bit, because she mentioned something like, She's going to give him an appropriate death knell, which, and I, you know, of course I know the phrase mm. death knell, but I'd never mm -hmm. thought about what it actually meant. And I guess what it means is a bell, you know, like a town bell that's rung when someone is about to die or has died. Right. And I just, I never, you know, it's one of those things where I never realized what the meaning was until she said it. Oh, yeah. And after she says that, you do faintly hear a bell tolling in the distance, so <laughs> So she was as good as her word. When Six exits out of this trap building, he's in the street, and immediately he has to dodge machine gun fire. Death is now up in a bell tower, and she's shooting down at him. He finds refuge in a shed where there's a bulldozer parked. He fires that up and heads toward her tower. I don't know if he's thinking he's going to knock it down or what, what's on his mind, but he, he, he goes toward her head on. And the bulldozer bucket is really pretty impressive because it blocks, well, of course it would block bullets, although you'd think she could shoot around the bucket <laughs> for bullets. Yeah, but but uh, she moves on to using mortar shells, and, and those, those don't work either. The bulldozer keeps going strong. And she tries grenades, and the, these are the old German potato masher style grenades. 
Yeah, and again, I hadn't realized uh, until this that the way those worked is they have a wooden handle that's stuck inside like this little metal, you know, can. And I thought you threw the whole thing, right? And that the, the, Mm -hmm. the handle gives you sort of leverage and you throw the whole thing, but that's not how it works. How it works that, which I, you know, learned in this episode is you throw toward them, but you don't let go of the handle. And what happens is that the can part of it flies off. And in the process of flying off, you trigger the fact that it's going to explode. Oh, so see, I, yeah. I, I, I tried looking this up and I, I couldn't find a definitive answer because I've, I've always thought that you threw the whole thing. It seems like from playing video games, at least <laughs> you throw the whole thing. I found a video on YouTube that was reenactors uh-huh. throwing these and they were throwing the whole thing, oh. the, the handle and all. So I, I'm not sure. I th- I think it may be that you have to throw the whole thing. I, I, I read a Wikipedia article that said there's a string you pull to actually <laughs> set the fuse off. So, so I don't know. This this may or may not be accurate. They so may be I'm giving misinformation here. But you know they yeah. use those a lot, and they and it's a big plot point that only the top part goes. So it's interesting if that's not true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But is uh, in this scene, I'm not sure if she's throwing the whole grenade or not. I think she might be throwing the handle and I don't, well, in this yeah. scene, but I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, what that's, we'll leave that to wiser <laughs> minds than ours, I guess. Uh, the grenades don't do anything against the bulldozer in any event, but then she pulls out a rocket launcher, which I believe these are also called light anti-tank weapons. And the bulldozer is pretty much a, a tank, so it's not going to go well for the bulldozer. And indeed, she blows it up with the first shot. But we find out after she takes a quick look around to survey the carnage, which there isn't really any actual carnage because there's no human meat lying around <laughs> anywhere to be found. She wanders off after that, and it turns out that number six had taken cover under a nearby manhole cover. So he crawls out of that. He follows her to a field where a helicopter is parked. He hides in the bushes and waits for a minute, watches. And as she takes off, he runs up and crawls out of the landing skids. So he's he's an extra passenger just on the outside. It's not clear whether or not she notices he's there, although it really doesn't matter either way. She'd probably still behave the same. <laughs> She lands the helicopter pretty soon, and it really, it looks like she lands it in the exact same place where they took off from. As soon as it lands, number six jumps off, and he hides in the bushes to watch what she does next. She goes to a cave. So he goes to the cave. On the way there, he sees a view of a lighthouse way down to the bottom of a cliff. This might have been at the White Cliffs of Dover that we saw in another episode. I'm not sure. We don't get a lot of views of it. But we do see that there's a lighthouse nearby anyway, and that'll end up being important. Then he finds the cave entrance that uh, Death had gone into, and inside he finds there are banks of big old 1960s computers there. And uh, there are also bunk beds for multiple people. And he finds that there are some lockers and other things, other bits of furniture around, and they're decorated with pictures of Napoleon and Josephine. And soon a guard comes in, and he's wearing the uniform of a Napoleonic soldier. And number six knocks him out and takes his uniform. 
Then we get an exterior shot of the lighthouse and then a view inside of it. There's a man in there dressed as Napoleon, and he's reviewing his troops, all six of them. <laughs> Death is also here, and she's dressed as a uh, French aristocrat now. She's still all in white, but she's now got a big Marie Antoinette hairdo. Yep. And the man dressed as Napoleon, to whom I will henceforth refer as Napoleon, <laughs> he says, in one hour's time, London will be entirely in ruins. So the rocket scientists plan is just about to come to fruition after all this time. <laughs> Number six infiltrates the armory, which is, is actually in the lighthouse on a lower level. He gets in there and knocks out the guard. Then he begins sabotaging the rifles that are on hand. And then he begins sabotaging the grenades that are on hand. And these are more of the German potato yeah. masher style grenades. And this is where uh, it's a plot point, right? What we were talking about, mm -hmm. because... He transfers the gunpowder or the explosive powder into the wooden handle so that the person throwing this but holding on to the handle is the one who's going to get blown up. Right. So, you know, yeah, it, I guess if they if they weren't properly representing how these work, it's because of this part where they wanted to, to do this. But uh, the other thing I found yeah. amusing was that Napoleon... It has this big map, you know, of England, and he's, like, talking about each part of it, and he's going to give each part to one of his troops or whatever. It's kind of funny because it's like, well, if you're going to annihilate the whole place, you know, nothing is going to be left after this bomb hits, but you're so you're, you're, you're sort of dividing up dirt or something between your, your forces, you know. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't clear the extent of the damage. He planned for London to be in ruins, but, you know, maybe that just will make the rest of the country buckle under. So, yep. you know, who cares if, if, if you got London, if you can get everything else. <laughs> Another guard comes to check on number six, and uh, he knocks him out too. And this will have some consequences because on the upper levels, Napoleon's about to begin his big plan, but his right-hand man is missing. He had gone down to the armory to check on another guard who was earlier knocked out. Now Napoleon sends all the other soldiers to go looking for this guy, his right-hand man. Down in the armory, they get down there. Number six tries to fool him with a little Irish accent, but that doesn't work. <laughs> so he uh, he knocks out a few of them, and he uh, escapes the lighthouse through a door in the side. The guards recover, and they take the guns from the wall to fire at number six. But these are guns that number six sabotaged. Fortunately, he happened to sabotage the exact ones that they were going to take off the wall. And uh, when they fire at number six, they're flung backwards. And they speed up uh, the film here, so it's kind of funny. And, and what they've done with these guys all along is they're kind of like Keystone Cops, right? They've been banging into yeah. each other and falling over. And now when they shoot, <laughs> they all go flying backwards. Yeah. <laughs> six re-enters the lighthouse and stepped, steps past their unconscious or possibly dead bodies. But as he goes up the little st spiral staircase, death is waiting for him <laughs> with a gun. That's bad. Up in the lighthouse, uh, upper level's the lighthouse, death ties number six's hands to the back of an office chair and tells him he's going for a rocket ride. <laughs> they begin the countdown, and number six struggles to get free of his chair there's several puns in here. So, so she has this, uh, so, well, she said something like, you'll be the first to know when the rocket hits London. And she says, uh, you know, Oh, yeah. you know, when you hit town, let me know. 
Yeah, there are a bunch of cute little lines, uh, you know, through, throughout the whole episode. There's a bunch of cute little details, but I didn't, I didn't want to go too into and into too much depth with this one because it's, um, well, we'll explain that in a moment here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they're rushing to gather up documents that they, they could have gathered at any time previously to starting the <laughs> countdown. Meanwhile, number six in his chair, he stops struggling and tries lifting his hands gently, which turns out to be the right move because the chair cushion pops off easily, <laughs> and suddenly he's free. He, uh, he, he kind of kind of has a amusing little reaction face to that. He wasn't really expecting that. <laughs> so being free, he, he messes with the controls of the rocket. They start smoking, and he leaves and goes down to the escape boat. If I didn't make it clear, the rocket is the lighthouse. And he has that revelation, too. Anyway, he's, he's down there at the base of the rocket-slash-lighthouse, getting into the escape boat, and Napoleon and Death spot him, and they throw these potato-masher-style grenades into the escape boat. And they do. This is, this is where you just see the big heads go down into the boat, and they're left holding the handles. And it seems like that's what they they intended to do, because if, if you were throwing a potato masher normally, you would anticipate letting go of the handle, I think. <laughs> I, I, I could be all wrong, but I could swear that's the normal way to do it, is, is throw the handle and the explosive. But for whatever reason, they're still holding on to the, holding on to the handles. And also, this wasn't the most well-thought-out plan, because... That escape boat is what they need to escape. So, That's a good point. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the grenade parts go down into the boat, but it's the handles that are sabotaged or the handles that are explosive now. So it ends up the Napoleon and Death and the lighthouse all blow up together. <laughs> and then we see number six closes a book. And the cover says the village storybook. And he says, and that is how I saved London from the mad scientist. <laughs> we see that he's in a room with three kids and it's a, it's a combination bedroom, playroom. You know, there are a couple bunks and another bed and some toys and, you know, typical children's playroom stuff. The kids all seem to love the story. They want him to come back and tell more stories. He puts them to bed. Well, this is the first time we've ever seen kids in the village, I think. So, yeah. I think so. We we've seen we've seen daughters, but they were like adult daughters. Yeah. And then as he's putting them to bed, we see the big screen in number 2's office, and now we're watching number 6 on the big screen. And Napoleon and Death are in number two's office, except they are number two, who is Napoleon. In Death, I couldn't read what her button said. Right. But she's she's all dressed up in motorcycle gear. She's <laughs> got the little black cap and a black leather jacket and all that. They're watching all this, and Napoleon's complaining. Uh, the idea of having him go in and see the kids was that it was supposed to get number six to lower his guard and reveal some useful information. Information. <laughs> uh, but as num number two slash Napoleon says, 
That one wouldn't drop his guard with his own grandmother. But I, and you know, again, I'm going to say, what was the plot here? Like he was going to be talking to some kids and say, Hey kids, here's why I resigned my job. See, there was a global conspiracy. <laughs> like what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the best plan, but you know, if they just had an evening to kill, I guess it could be fun. <laughs> see, see what he'd do with it. Number six is still on the big screen. He turns to the hidden camera and says, good night, children everywhere. <laughs> Meaning number two and his assistant there. He knows what they're up to. And in fact, the story that he told was basically just making fun of what mm -hmm. jerks he thinks they are. <laughs> so, so that's the end of the episode. Okay. So now we're going to head into our, our epic <laughs> discussion of what to keep and what the order should be. <laughs> Let's talk about these four episodes that I excluded and whether, whether you want some or, or all to go back in. And if it's all, <laughs> as I said, you know, I can't, uh, I can't uh, guarantee my body won't be found uh, floating in a pond somewhere tomorrow, but not, not that I'm pressuring you or anything. Okay. So if you can cast your mind back to last week, we had dance of the dead, right? So our, our mm. only, uh, from the beginning female number two, a lot of kind of things that would end up becoming part of the rest of the series. But as I argued, it really felt like a pilot that was mined for ideas, but in itself, I didn't find to be very, very compelling. I think you, mm. you know, felt maybe a little different about that. What's, what's your take? I think of, of ones that I would want to include in the, the canon, I'd say this one would be, out of these four, this one would be my second choice, but I'd say it's not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't demand that it go into the canon. I'd, I'd accept it, but I wouldn't demand it. So we can, we can go with your original instincts on this one. Okay. Then we had a change of mind. So that was the one you went over. Now I've kind of already half forgotten. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, change of mind is the one with unmutual. Oh, right. right. Uh, that's uh, and that that's the one out of these four. I think this one, I would give the most serious consideration right. to adding it to the canon. Oh, uh, and I agree. And I think we talked about at the time where I felt like I had kind of missed previously that there was something this added. My original reason for removing that wasn't that it, the episode was strictly bad. I just didn't felt like it added or did anything. And I think what I was missing was this is the only time that the village turns on number six and that there was all that commentary mm -hmm. that was clearly related to the cultural revolution and stuff. So in retrospect, I think I was missing something there and, and the, mm -hmm. you know, that does have something to add. Oh, yeah, for especially for a show whose whose theme is individuality. Mm -hmm. I mean, this this is an episode that's clearly one of the most overtly anti-individual <laughs> episodes. Right. Okay. So yeah, that would be my mandatory. Well, almost mandatory <laughs> okay, one. No if you want to leave that out, it's no, fine. No, I I think you're right. <laughs> uh, okay. So how about do not forsake me? You know, off the top of my head. That really might be one of, I enjoyed it, so I wouldn't use disappointing as the word, but uh, it, it, it wasn't a standout episode, I didn't think. It just didn't grab me, and 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily make it uh, part of the official list. If you want to leave it out, that's fine. And and I think you know related to what you're saying in our earlier discussion, one of the really disappointing things is it could have been a good episode, you know, and just mm-hmm. the acrobatics they had to go through because McGowan wasn't there just turned it into something. And and also, and we didn't mention this, but I had to say, even though the actor who played the Colonel had done some other interesting stuff, he's actually most well known for playing Watson in a number of Sherlock Holmes movies, but he, you know, he did not have in this context, the compelling presence of McGowan, right? If McGowan had been doing exactly the same Mm. things, it would probably be a more interesting episode, but this guy just didn't have that same Mm. charisma, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd say that's true. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't bad. He just didn't really have any, you know, so many of the people they cast for the prisoner have their own little quirks or right. odd little character actor traits that really make him stand out. And this guy was more of a, I mean, he was, yeah, he was good for the role, but he wasn't, you know, he didn't grab you. Yeah, he's just kind of a normal guy, you. yeah. Yeah. Okay, and finally, the girl who was dead. Now, let me say, you know, Probably more than previously. I totally enjoy it each moment in itself. There's a lot of clever stuff. I love the, you know, you have been poisoned thing in the um, bottom of the, mm-hmm. the beer stein. I love a lot of the little bits, but really you can tell it's not, a, wasn't intended to be a prisoner episode. What it really feels like and uh, is an Avenger episode. And, you know, that's one on our list to mm-hmm. hopefully get to sometime. They, they did a lot more of that kind of you know, just plain people being cool and doing funky things and all that. But, but you know, my thing here is it's it just has nothing to do with the prisoner. I mean, they just, you mm-hmm. know, it's so clearly they just wrapped a few seconds at the beginning and end to make it feel like a prisoner thing. Mm-hmm. Actually, not even at the beginning, just the end. And it makes no sense whatsoever, even though, you know, like I thought the guy who played Napoleon, I enjoyed watching him. I Yeah, you know, I think I've seen him in other things. He He looked real familiar to me. Yeah, yeah. So my argument is leaving it out, not because it's not enjoyable to watch, just, you know, as a fun little dis- thing, but just, it doesn't fit. It's not part of the prisoner story to me. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun to watch, but it wasn't, it really added nothing to the prisoner. You know, I mean, it was just really, it was a shaggy dog story, basically. It just sort of, you know, you get like one minute at the end of finding out what number two's evil plot was and it was kind of a stupid one so you know i mean aside from that aside from that nothing you see actually actually happened unless i mean you know it could very well be like a variation on something that really did happen to him that he was drawing off but basically yeah it's you've you've watched 50 minutes of a show and gotten more or less zero information out of it as regards the series as a whole. Well, let's see. So, you know, I mean, you're kind of giving me one on Dance of the Dead, and even though I'm really not a fan of that, what I'd say is, I mean, (laughs) we would end up with only adding one. I I think it's fair to maybe say, okay, let's add in Dance of the Dead. I I do like Dance of the Dead. I I enjoy some of the characters in it, and I enjoy some of the the world building, you know, like you see a little bit more of the village Mm -hmm. and number two and the black cat and... Mm. Yeah, you know, different stuff, but it is also, it is a little confusing, you know, especially you get to the ending, like what, what, what's that machine for? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can take it or leave it. Whatever you prefer is fine. That's why I call it like a pilot, right? Cause I feel like the teletype at the end of Dance of the Dead 
that was probably the inspiration for the general, right? And the general mm -hmm. is a much more interesting concept, but oh, yeah. it's just, you know, so in a way I'd say I, and I can't tell, I didn't read anything that indicated this, but I really feel this had to be one of the very first things that was written and that it was important mm -hmm. because it gave them ideas for the rest of the series, but it wasn't in itself a particularly enjoyable episode to me. Right. Yeah. So ultimately, I'd be happy to leave it out while acknowledging that it's probably an important part of the process <laughs> of yeah. coming up with some of the ideas for the prisoner. Yeah. Okay, well, that would leave us with a change of mind, which makes sense. I don't, thinking about it in terms of the order, and we'll go over some of the, you know, reordering that we've talked about as we've gone through. Well, let's talk about kind of the reordering that I have and then see where a change of mind might fit in. I don't recall anything that makes it particularly like, oh, it has to be earlier, it has to be late. So it can probably just be kind of put in somewhere where it makes sense. So we have, uh, talking through the order here, we have Arrival and, you know, you can't, <laughs> that's definitively oh, the first, first episode. Yeah, yeah got to be first. <laughs> and then, you know, I had, it, most people put Free For All second and it was clearly kind of designed to be probably second. And I had really rejected it because it made, I just really had a problem with the idea of having an election that he runs for number two as the very second episode. But hmm. when we actually watched it in the order I had, what really bothered me about where I had it was at the end of that one, if you recall, they aren't even trying to get information out of him. They just beat hmm. the crap out of him. And then the woman who turns out to be the new number two, who was his driver and, you know, and all that throughout it says, this is just the beginning, you know, this is what we're mm -hmm. going to put you through. And I felt like, well, yeah, you know, that it has to go very early because of what she's saying there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it doesn't make sense. You know, I can't have it fourth, fifth, sixth, and, and have her say, this is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I'm those yeah. are the. Mm -hmm. The way they mention or they present the whole premise to him that, oh, well, we have these elections every <laughs> year or whatever. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, if he's been there for any length of time, he's going to know they're right. just. Although it is funny because every other episode, they're like, oh, we do this thing every year or every, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But so I feel like, okay, in spite of my issues with having an election, it's the second story that he runs for. I think it's got to go as number two. Sure, that works. Then I had Checkmate later, and I'm putting it now as number three because as we went through it, I mean, you really pointed out that it everything in it just felt like it was an early episode. So Checkmate was the one where, right, they're playing this chess game, and then he's mm -hmm. figuring out who are the wardens and who are the prisoners by how different people act and then puts together right. an escape plan. And he enlists his little crew of... Right. Uh, and it would have worked except they turned his own thing on him and assumed that he was a warden because of how he was ordering them all around. <laughs> yeah. He had too much confidence. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so going with the idea that it needed to be earlier, I think three probably is, is fine for that. Also, it actually connects yeah. to something in free for all as a candidate, his, his main speech in free for all, he actually says, I intend to find out who are the wardens here and who are the prisoners. And so mm. then checkmate is really just the implementation of what he said there. Yeah. Politician who keeps his promises. <laughs> yeah. Next up, you know, and again, moved it is schizoid man. You know, it's one of my favorite episodes. I really just, I think it's a great episode. I think, uh, him playing both roles is great. 
but I had it later because honestly, when I've watched this previously, I hadn't paid as much attention to references to the general. And it turns out there's multiple times in the series where they reference the general and in the, in schizoid man, you know, so this is where they bring in another person who looks just like number six in order to kind of confuse his identity and get him to give things up. And he manages at the end to swap places with that other person. And he's almost ready to escape, but he makes several mistakes. And one of them is when the number two says something about the general, he, number six says, well, when I report to the general and number two says, well, that's an odd thing to say. Well, <laughs> that, you know, I previously had the general come before schizoid man, but that, but then that makes no sense. Right. Um, uh, mm -hmm. because he makes this mistake cause he doesn't know the general is a computer. Right. And so I felt like, mm, again, I can't, you know, yes, there is no perfect order, but I can't let that go. Schizoid man <laughs> has to come before the general so that the viewer has that same confusion. They don't know what number two is talking about. They don't know why it was a mistake. Right. And then the next episode then I put is the general. So you've heard about the general. He screwed up. It it kept him from escaping and now and along with his other mistakes. And now the next episode is the general and we find out, you know, what that's about. Then there's a A, B, and C. So if you recall, um the general and A, B, and C have the same number two, which is actually almost unique. I mean, I think only Leo McKern comes back more than once, other than this person. And you know, as I mentioned, the way it's traditionally ordered, and many people do it, is they put A, B, and C before the general, but it makes no sense. Because as we talked about at the time, in the general, he says, I'm the new number two. Mm -hmm. And in the general, he's very he starts out very confident. But by the end of the general, the general has been destroyed. And mm -hmm. number six is essentially one in that case. And so then A, B, and C, as you recall, that's where he's, you know, going to the party and they're trying to find out. And throughout the process of A, B, and C, number mm -hmm. two is falling apart, right? Yeah, he's really worked up. Yeah, so it makes no sense to have A, B, and C and then the general because he's destroyed in A, B, and C. And at the end, you know, number six sure. pretends that he's he's the, the mole and everything, which probably is going to get him, you know, sent to a place less pleasant than the village. <laughs> it makes no sense that he would end in ABC and then start the general where he's all confident. So I feel like these two have to go in this order. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, maybe a little later than I like it, even though it's sort of the canonical prison episode, we have Chimes of Big Ben. And I think it's got to come a ways in. Many people, again, sometimes put it as number two, but Chimes of Big Ben is premised on, and that's the first Leo McKern episode. It's premised on the idea that number six has been here a while, right? And, and you know, Leo McKern says things like, do you remember your first day when they're watching this other person go through waking up in the village mm. and all that? And, and in that one, number six actually plays a part of the village, as we talked about, because he doesn't know if he can trust this new person. And so he actually acts like a typical member of the village by refusing to give her straight answers and that mm. sort of thing. Uh, so I feel like it can't come any earlier than this, but I don't want it to come any later because you want kind of a, some space between Chimes of Big Ben and the last couple episodes. Where the last episode, comes back. Yeah. yeah. Then we have ones, and this is where I think somewhere in here we probably put a change of mind, that I think are not too order-dependent. You know, there's, so Living in Harmony, which is just... Like, it, living in Harmony, almost going by my rules for the other ones, you would think would reject, because it's not really a prisoner episode and that it doesn't take place in the village, etc. But uh, But I have to be fair. I just enjoy it. I just think it's well done. 
<laughs> and so I'm kind of making an exception for my own rules. <laughs> no, no, I like it. That's yeah. a good one. Actually, living in a harmony, I think the ending is pretty good because it's another mm-hmm. it's another case where the wardens end up kind of screwing themselves instead right. of number six. Yeah, I agree. And and I, we talked about it at the time, right? It is an episode where one of the things I think it does contribute to the prisoner story is it's the first one that says that doing all these deceptions and doing all this stuff is also impacting the people who are in charge, right? It's not just impacting mm-hmm. number six and, and the other prisoners. You know, they're getting changed by this and they're having problems. Right. Then we have Hammer and Anvil. Again, this is one where it doesn't have a particular place it needs to go. Definitely an enjoyable one. One where where number six has some victory over number two because he really destroys him by the end. <laughs> That's where he does all these little conspiracy things to make uh, number two think that, that number one is after him. Right. Then it's your funeral, which again, other than, you know, it's clearly not an early one, So, but there's not a particular order for it. I really like the number two and that, or the, you remember you have the up and coming number two and the retiring number two and, you know, the whole plot with oh, the, yeah. old, uh, the old man putting together the clockwork bomb to destroy him. Oh, the giant medallion around <laughs> yeah. the neck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a fun one. And, you know, so no particular order there. Then we have many happy returns, yeah. which as I said, to me is kind of the end of the narrative story. It's the end of the mm-hmm. traditional prisoner story, right? Where he uh, everybody's gone from the village and then he actually returns to London and, and almost succeeds. You know, I, I, let me interrupt mm-hmm. you for just a second to look back at these last, the last three, the living in harmony, hammer into Anvil and it's your funeral. All three of those are ones where number six got the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking that's appropriate to have them right before the fine final episodes you know like yeah i mean maybe we building could a crisis think about them. where to put a change of mind in here but yeah part of part of my what i'm tempting with the whole ordering is to to have him become more successful over time right and so yeah i think having mm-hmm. these here where he's right. starting to really kind of be able to screw with people he understands how things work then you have what i consider <laughs> the the tragedy of many happy returns right as we talked about which is he really gets an actual mm-hmm. opportunity to escape, and it still fails in the end. And I feel like that's the point that essentially destroys him in, you know, my version of <laughs> of this. Right. Yeah, that's true. Because, okay, yeah, I was, I was thinking you have Once Upon a Time and Fallout on the same line. I was thinking Many Happy Returns was Once Upon a Time. Right. But, yeah, so, the, so, yeah, you've got three where he's succeeds and then you've got one where he doesn't <laughs> yep and then you've yeah and then like i say once upon a time in fallout i'd really just treat as one extended episode right i mean there's, they're so interconnected yeah you know? they they you really need uh, once upon a time I, I think we mentioned this in back when we did the show on those but once upon a time can stand on its own, but Fallout kind of depends on Once Upon a Time right. having come right before it. Right. Okay, so with that ordering, and it sounds like, you know, you're okay with, with that general ordering, they always sort of figure out where mm-hmm. to put a change of mind. And, you know, is one possibility is just put it between Chimes of Big Ben and Leaving in Harmony. So, you know, because it doesn't have a lot of, um, I don't think, I can't remember anything in there that's really 
indicates that it's earlier or later. Yeah, I uh, I can't think of anything specific that would. He does, he does win in the me, end, you know. He, it is one where he defeats number two again. Yeah, it it struck me as something about it struck me as a slightly earlier one, mm-hmm. like maybe he didn't know a lot about what was going on in the village, but but I could be wrong. So I'll, well, I'll trust your judgment. I mean, on you this could one. also put it before times of Big Ben, and it would be you know a little earlier, and then you kind of lead into this whole chimes living, you know, et cetera. So I think that makes sense. That essentially puts it halfway through. Although if if we hmm, if we put it after chimes of Big Ben, then that would have a little more space right. between the yep. one in A, B, and C yep. where he. Uh, yep. And so, and all this, of course, is that interesting thing, as I say, and then you'll actually watch it and then you'll be like, wait a second, you know, this doesn't fit. <laughs> but, uh, I'll tell you, well, we'll just put it after Transvig then. I think the idea of, yeah, uh, that seems like a fair place for it. Yeah. Adding a little bit of space between chimes and the end is fine. And it, um, yeah, I think it works well there. Okay. So, and I'll, I'll put this in the notes for anyone who, who's really concerned about it, but, um, we have our right. revised ordering and we are done with the prisoner and we're gonna, you know, I like to, yeah. where it can, we like to start and end with kind of little things that are a little different, but, you know, give you some insights. So next week, what we'll be doing is the movie that he was, the the reason that Patrick McGowan was not there for Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, which is Ice Station Zebra. Mm-hmm. And we may, you know, may have some surprising conclusions about that movie perhaps belonging in the prisoner universe. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you want to say about the series or, you know, do, any feelings you have here now that we're at the end? No, I, I enjoyed it. It definitely enhanced my already fairly strong inclination not to be numbered, indexed, filed, <laughs> stamped, pushed, or whatever. Well, it's a, it's a neat show. There's, there's parts of it that don't entirely make sense, but I, I think part of it is intended to be your own interpretation. You know, you're, you're meant to think about it. And so, yeah, I, uh, I, I've had it, heard it hyped all my life, all the, you know, ever since I was old enough to hear people talking about classic TV shows, and it's lived up to expectations, or, you know, at least lived up to. Uh, <laughs> I really, really got a kick out of it. Very nice. Well, I think that's a great place to end, and so we'll see you next week. Yep.